What is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to California's Central Valley? Is this California business as usual? Or is this the fight over human and non-human rights? What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do? Where do we find the promise for a better world? Stay tuned for this week's installment. I am Pegasus, your host for The Peril and the Promise, sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. In the prior episode of The Peril and the Promise, we heard about some of the problems at the more than 60 nuclear power plants in the United States in terms of long-term lack of safety. On this episode of The Peril and the Promise, we'll hear a little more from John LaForge of NukeWatch and how some of those problems are exemplified in California. Also on this week's episode of The Peril and the Promise, we'll hear from Bruce Gagnon, who's been working for decades to educate the public about the global issues of weapons and nuclear power in outer space. And we'll also hear from Robert Lucero regarding land trusts in California and Native American stewardship of lands in California. Let's start with John LaForge. We're actually recording in early 2019 in Wisconsin, but I wanted to talk a little bit about California, of course. Now, with Fukushima, uh, that disaster after the tsunami in 2011, I think it was March 11th, 2000? March of 2011. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. My understanding, as I look every once in a while, twice a year, I hear that the, the it never really stopped, that it's still leaking and coming to the ocean. Do you have any Yes, it is. Okay, <laughs> tell me about that. Yeah, the uh, earthquake, which was the largest in Japanese history, broke apart the foundations of three reactors. Okay. And what's happening ever since then now is that groundwater, which moves from the mountains, which rise up right behind this system, groundwater falls into these reactor basements all day long, every day for all these years now because the reactor foundations are so cracked. Mm. So groundwater is rushing into the foundations of these reactors it's hundreds of tons a day and it mixes with the corium that's the funny word that they use now for this melted mass of uranium fuel rod broken foundations are just sieves for groundwater that rushes in uh it gets contaminated heavily contaminated by mixing with the fuel at the bottom of these reactors and then at the same time water is poured in on top of these uh reactor mass waste uh, mass piles of waste or coriums to keep them from overheating because they're also still very thermally hot and all this contaminated water then is rushing out of the reactor some of it's captured and filtrated through this new fist system that they invented whole cloth for this process uh, because of what happened Uh, they invented a way to filter out and capture and filters Many of the radionuclides or radioactive materials that are in this water, but not all of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the water, roughly 300 tons a day, isn't captured and is still rushing into the Pacific every single day. It's obviously terrible for the environment around Japan. Um, has there been measurements in California, Oregon, Washington, um, anywhere else on the planet? Has it been traced that, that there's radioactivity hitting other parts of the planet? from these eight years of continuing flowing into the Pacific Ocean. 
Yes, there sure is. Um, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute has been measuring and uh, collecting data on the plume that's coming from Fukushima all these years. Uh, the very first indication uh, of contamination from Japan all the way over to our coast, uh, west coast, was the uh, capture of uh, large bluefin tuna that had this cesium fingerprint. Okay. And what you were mentioning before is true. There is a way to positively identify that cesium-134 came, uh -huh. came directly from this Fukushima accident, even though there's other cesium still in the ocean from atmospheric nuclear yeah. weapons testing. Mm -hmm. uh, cesium-134 and cesium-137 uh, have certain characteristics where in terms of the, the decay periods that they have, mm. where these the scientists can identify them positively as being from Japan. The bluefin tuna, uh, a magnificent creature, oh, they, yeah. they travel at enormous rates of speed. They're so oh. fast, and they can cross the ocean. Uh, they were the first major or large fish to cross the ocean, and uh, the first time they were tested after the accident, um, all 15 fish that were tested had trace amounts of cesium from these accidents and the, the gusher of radioactive materials that's coming from Fukushima into the Pacific. The reason that the tuna have it is they eat smaller fish and yeah. those eat s smaller yeah. fish yet and it's the smallest uh, animals that are uh, most quickly and uh, thoroughly contaminated by the cesium. I know this um, the accident, uh, the disaster in Fukushima was uh, uh, eight years ago. Do you remember how quickly it was discovered from March of 2011 to when the bluefin tuna were was it the same month? Was it how? Do you remember that at all? I would have to look back at a, at the records I kept. I think it was four months. What, what does that mean to California? Well, other indications. Uh, I mean, they followed the scientists who were uh, following the plume. Uh, did trace uh, ocean current uh, trans mm -hmm. transfer of the cesium as well, and that that has reached the uh, the coast in Canada and the coast in California. Oregon, Washington, mm -hmm. and it has been found in some of the fish in the area. If people want to look deeper into that, it's the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute that's doing the work. You know, this happened in March. Uh -huh. The U.S. government initiated some uh, monitoring of air and water in a sort of a haphazard way right away, but they suspended it in four months later, and now they don't take any extra precautions <laughs> to see if there's still airborne radionuclides, the airborne uh, iodine-131 did travel all the way across the Pacific and reached drinking water and in many U.S. cities. That was recorded and well-documented. Yeah. Just the same way that uh, the fallout from Chernobyl in 1986 covered the whole northern hemisphere wow. and was found in drinking water and, and milk in Minnesota, for example. Uh, these things are forgotten right away yeah. uh, by the general public because they aren't reported on regularly. But if you look at the Japan Times, say, which you can read online in English, uh, they have a report on Fukushima every day. Uh -huh. There's something new. These waters right off the accident site were found for the first time in four years to be contaminated above the allowable amount. Uh -huh. uh, again, with cesium. Cesium-137 is a is a devil in all this because it lasts uh, roughly 300 years okay. in the environment at 10 times the radioactive half-life. Uh, okay. So it's going to maintain uh, a fingerprint, a footprint, and in the biological terms, 
uh, it bioconcentrates in the fishery. So by the time you're eating a large fish, which has itself eaten smaller fish, they in turn have right. in their lives eaten smaller fish. The amount of cesium increases as it goes up the food chain. I see. Okay. And that's why it's a danger to humans who eat fishery from the Pacific, uh, in my estimation. Of course, the U.S. government, California, state agencies, they all say the fish to eat from the Pacific is perfectly fine. We've been listening to John LaForge, who has been analyzing the science and politics of U.S. nuclear weapons for over three decades and the related issues such as nuclear waste as it pertains to the perils we face in California. We now turn to Bruce Gagnon, who's been working for decades to educate the public about the global issues of weapons and nuclear power in outer space. I once read in a, in a, uh, a mining corporation newsletter that Halliburton, who I think you're familiar with, uh, is working on a drilling mechanism for Mars. They say there's magnesium and cobalt and uranium on Mars. There's helium-3 and water on the moon. There's gold on the asteroids. All kinds of mineral deposits all over, the, all over space. And they want to go out and mine the sky. But they have two objectives. Number one is to privatize, to get around the United Nations treaties, the Moon Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty, that say the heavens are the province of all humankind. No individual, no corporation, no country can claim ownership of any of the planetary bodies. When Obama was president, he signed a bill allowing American corporations to make private land claims on celestial bodies. And so now with the privatization of launch capability, after you, the taxpayers, paid all the years of research and development, once they developed the technologies to go out into space, they privatize the operation. And now they want to go out and privatize the mining operations. And they want to use nuclear power to do it as well. And so I believe one of the key jobs of the Space Force will be to control the military highway, the front gate, if you will, on and off the planet Earth. And I want to read to you just a couple lines from this book. The lowest energy transfer site for trips between Earth and Mars could be fitted with military facilities, as well as motel, gas station, warehouse, <laughs> restaurant, and garage. <laughs> and here's the kicker line. Armed forces might lie in wait at that location to hijack rival shipments upon return. So if you control the highway on and off the planet Earth, and somebody tries to go out and mine the sky, and they're not authorized, you can take them out and control the pathway. And that, I believe, is one of the key jobs of the Space Force in the coming years. This is what they're planning for. That was Bruce Gagnon commenting on the 20-year-old plans by the Pentagon for a United States Space Command branch for the armed forces and the corporate business commercial reasons for such militarized space forces. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. I am Pegasus, your host. Today we've been listening to Bruce Gagnon about the U.S. Space Command 
and about the reasons why their motivations are potentially not in concert with traditional human desires for a safe, livable planet. Hearing the voices of the Native American people who said, when the white man came to this continent, the white man was blinded by his love for the green frog skin, the dollar bill. And he couldn't see beyond, he couldn't see beyond that. He couldn't see his connection to nature. He couldn't see when it rained, where the water went, and how he, the white man's way of living was soiling the water, his life source, right? So uh, for me, that really resonates, that it's a spiritual, it's like taking a stick. It's the spiritual connection between human beings and our Mother Earth is snapped, is broken in half. And from, from that comes this sickness, this material sickness that we all suffer from in one way or the other, that we've all been inculcated with in one way or the other. It's something certainly we do need to talk more about, absolutely. And that we each need to confront within our own self. It's the demon that exists within all of us because we've all been raised in this culture and in this material world. That was Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, talking about the U.S. Space Command as an armed forces branch of the Pentagon and how difficult it is to follow our innate human mandate to take care of our families and our species versus the lures of commercial interests, fear, and greed. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Robert Lucero, one of California's movers and shakers in the land trust movement. Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. I am your host, Pegasus, talking on the phone with Robert Lucero of the Land Trust Movement that has helped Utes and other indigenous American tribes and governments to reclaim legal jurisdiction over lands and, more importantly, enabling all people to have a better relationship with the earth, air, water, and other life forms in wilderness areas that otherwise might be toxified by terrible human activities that harm the environment and future generations. So I have the uh, you know honor and pl- privilege of working with the business committee of the Ute Indian Tribe. So the Ute Indian Tribe of the Uinta Ure Reservation is headquartered in Fort Duchesne, Utah. Um, this was the original reservation headquarters that was uh, set aside in the 1860s by the federal government um, when the, tr- the Ute people were being expelled from uh, the Salt Lake area, and then from the other side, um, expelled out of Colorado later on. And so the whole issue of what what happens in, in and around the reservation land there is a very complicated one that involves uh, BIA and, you know, uh, the federal government. Um, there's this treaty and trust relationship that the tribes have with the federal government. But then there's the question of, for our tribe, um, question of Colorado lands, lands that previously had been Ute Ute, uh, tribe lands, uh, again, from which the tribe was expelled in the 1880s. There's an interest in Colorado in uh, returning some of these lands to the Ute tribe 
uh, either through outright transfers of ownership. Uh, we had a transaction like that last year or through um, easements, uh, conservation easements, cultural easements, which is where the whole land trust world uh, comes into play for, in our case, a treaty tribe, but can also be something that tribes, uh, you know, indigenous peoples or descendants of indigenous peoples in places like California, uh, they can look to this, this kind of process as well when they want to reconnect to uh, their ancestral lands. Are you saying that, that easements is the way to go when there's not tribal interest? Well, so in California, let's say you compare California and Utah. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, California had a, you know, in terms of just the history of California and Utah in the last uh, 150 years. So, you know, California with California, like Colorado, had a gold rush, you know, a more famous gold rush. And during that gold rush, there was this mass expulsion of uh, the ranches, the Mexicans, and the Indians, yeah. um, the natives. And so there was even a law at the first legislative session of the California legislature called the, the Indian, Indian Government and Protection Act of 1850. And this bill made it legal for any white man to uh, capture and enslave uh, Indian or Mexican children that they saw running around the street or in a neighborhood or whatever they found uh, to be their slave for the mining and other development purposes at the time. Right. Um, so there was this nasty, nasty campaign in the 1850s in a very dark time in, in U.S. history. Yeah. It was, you know, the, 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 the peak of, of slavery in the old United States and then yeah. the same sort of Wild West going on in the 1850s and 60s out out here, um, and uh, uh, the difference is that in 1863 a reservation was established for the Ute uh, tribe in Utah, um, so there was a sort of protection and there was this treaty uh, treaty relationship between the Ute tribe and the United States, but that did not exist. In, in the, with the California tribes. The California tribes were essentially wiped out um, after, the, I mean, the Spanish had done a good job of that long before that. Yeah. Um, but by the time you get to this period where you get some of these treaty tribes establishing these long relationships that have continued with the government, uh, California tribes really got wiped out. So it isn't until the recent 30 years or so that you've had this uh, reestablishment of tribal lands um, for want of a better way to put it, yeah. around these casino plans. Yeah. Um, and so you've had these uh, these tribes develop uh, and become part of NCAI and other you know, national voices and such. Um, Thank you. And uh, NCAI, for the sake of our listeners, can you uh, say what that acronym NCAI is? The, the National Congress of American Indians was established in 1944 as an advocacy organization for tribes, the Ute Indian Tribe, of the Uinta and Uri Reservation is one of the founding tribes of NCAI. Um, so when it comes to comparing California and Utah and conservation efforts that include tribes, it's going to be different in Colorado, in Utah, and in California, each one. Got it. Um, our involvement with the land trust world is very new, so we're, we're still figuring it out ourselves. Okay. Um, we'll have to keep you posted on that. Got it. Okay. Um, it, this is very interesting, and I, I wish we had a whole hour to talk about it, but we only have a few more minutes, so maybe at some future time we might have you on the peril and the promise to talk again if there's any really important news that we could get out to our uh, audience in the Central Valley of California. 
If you're just tuning in to The Peril and the Promise, you should know that I'm Pegasus, talking on the phone with Robert Lucero of the Land Trust Movement. Robert, can you tell me more about how private owners of land in the Western U.S. have been able to pass the, air quotes, ownership of land to Native American land trusts in the past few years? How is this happening? Um, it has happened, and I think what um, the Ute Land Trust is... Uh very uniquely positioned as one of the, we're essentially, from what I understand, the first treaty tribe land trust. Um, so we're helping to uh, show in the Mountain West, in Utah and Colorado in particular, uh, maybe northern New Mexico and northern uh, Arizona uh, and Ute ancestral lands, that we can get some of these lands back um, that the tribe, this tribe, the Ute tribe, has already been involved in conservation for uh, centuries. Um, that's, you know, comes out of native culture, a responsibility, a duty, yes. um, you know, a natural relationship with the earth and with the, uh, the elements in our, in our universe, Absolutely. um, to get, to, to, to reconnect tribes with this, this, uh, cultural and, uh, historic uh, connection is, uh, is something we're, we're working on now. And there have been a few transactions. There was, um, uh, the one that I was personally involved with was a, um, a small transaction, relatively small in the San Luis area of Colorado. Uh-huh. Um, this is an area that is close to the border of New Mexico, yeah. um, toward the Taos area of New Mexico. And it's very heavy, uh, with youth, uh, you know, the youth presence, uh, historically in New Mexico, there's actually a youth mountain, uh, on the New Mexico side of the border. Um, that you can see from this property that was donated to the tribe. So three acres were donated to the tribe, were given back to the tribe by a small landowner. Mm-hmm. And he's actually putting three more acres in his will, so a total of six acres. And he's putting them right directly into Ute tribe ownership. Um, so as far as the legal side of things, we're going to sort of sort that, out, sort that out over time. But the land trust allows us to at least take lands um, – either directly uh, in this case or through uh, conservation easements. Um, we're having conversations in other parts of Colorado right now about possible purchases. Um, some of this land could possibly be turned over into trust status with the federal government. So it's a very, uh, very new but, but fluid world and um, for tribes. But I think, like you said earlier, there is a movement uh, – to say we want to give some of this land back to the original holders of it. Yeah. I've always understood that um, land trusts to be similar to other state-level entities and that sometimes like a land trust where I live um, in California, in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, it also gets nonprofit status from the federal IRS. Is there such a thing that I hear you say a minute ago that there's Uh federal land trust versus, I mean, that's different category, obviously, than if, than state land trusts. Do you, can you speak for a minute about what those differences are federal and state? Well, we're, we're a newer land trust, so we're still learning ourselves. But my understanding is that, um, land trusts get accredited by the land trust Alliance. Yeah. We ourselves are working toward that. Um, Land trusts vary from what I see. They vary in size. They vary in scope as to what they're dealing with. Yep, and you know, purpose. You take, a, you take a land trust in the Sierras, it's going to be different than a, a land trust on a river back mm-hmm. east yeah. versus the Big Sur land trust or something like that on the West Coast. So they all have different mandates, including with ours, which is to reconnect tribes to conservation efforts that were you know, violently disrupted in the 18th 
sixties, eighteen eighties during the you know Indian Wars and so forth. Yeah. Well, thank you, Robert Lucero. Can you give us a website or other places people can go to get more information on the work that you're doing? Sure. You can visit youthlandtrust.org, U-T-E-L-A-N-D-T-R-U-S-T.org. That will take you to our, our temporary page, which has a link to our uh, original nonprofit, the Indian Lands and Public Lands Alliance, ILPLA. And um, I, can be, I can be reached via email or phone there. That's great. Thank you so much, Robert Lucero. And one more question. Sure. Can you tell me, um, what is the hope? I honor and respect the work you're doing, but can you put it in a nutshell, why it's so good to have more Native American land trusts in terms of what happens with the land on Turtle Island in North America? I, I think um, the way my work originally originally got started in, with the Ute Indian tribe was in 2016. Um, there was federal legislation called the Public Lands um, Initiative, the Utah Public Lands Initiative, that was drafted by Congressman Rob Bishop of Utah, um, Utah's first district, and Congressman Jason Chaffetz. They drafted this bill that essentially, um, pardon the background noises here, um, they drafted this bill that would have taken, for the first time in over 100 years, through an act of Congress, it would have taken over 100,000 acres of the Ute Indian Tribe Reservation in Utah away from the Ute Tribe. It would have also undermined the, the sovereign control over half a million acres by the, by the Ute Indian Tribe wow. through, through new um, red tape and laws by the, by the Congress, by the federal government. Um, so it was a very nasty piece of legislation. So yeah. we established a political action committee at the time called Ute, Ute PAC. Um, and... Uh, it was through that work that we essentially stopped that land grab. We exposed it and did a lot of work to stop it um, through media and, and different organizing. And so it was out of that process that we started to look into, well, how do we stop the land grabs and actually reverse the process and uh, yeah. create a clamor for some land to be returned to the tribe? Um, so I think that's where um, our original push came from was uh, we had to, we had to fight back against the land grab, and then it turned out that a lot of people wanted to support that, our work on that, and support returning other other lands, um, uh, ancestral land, to the tribe. That's a great story in terms of, like, the nasty legislation is coming down the pike. People get together and stand up for what is right and good and a better way to treat each other and the land. And then there's a success, and then people are inspired, and then more stuff, more good stuff comes out of that. Yeah, we're very happy and proud about that, and uh, and I think it makes it very exciting in the uh, in the current the current environment in the land trust world. Thank you so much, Robert Lucero of the Land Trust Movement, enabling all people to have a better relationship with the earth. You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise from kcbpradio.org, produced by Pegasus here at the Peace Life Center of Modesto. You can tune in every week at this time to learn about the peril that humans make for each other and the promise that we can make for a better world as community. Music on The Peril and the Promise is by Alzara Getz and Dorothy's Melting.